Welcome to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. As usual, it's a Tuesday episode, so here with us is our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Hugo, how's it going? Good morning on this like completely grim January morning in New York City. Today is an advertisement for moving to Florida, I think. Yeah, or anywhere with better weather than here. Yeah, um, which is not Buffalo. Did you watch the game yesterday in the I, snow? I did. Um, I really, th- I was rooting for the Bills for a whole bunch of reasons, and it really was not a competitive game. It's interesting. I thought that that was going to be a great game yesterday, and I thought the Niners were going to beat the Cowboys by a lot. The Niners-Cowboys was actually a kind of a reasonably decent game, and the Bills-Bengals was boring because yeah. the Bengals just killed them. Yeah, it killed them. Um, so I, 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 we're going to get to a whole bunch of stuff in today's uh, episode, but I wanted to start with just a couple of news items. Um, the president, uh, President Biden, had an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal last week, which I always think is kind of funny. You're like, wait, doesn't he have a big enough pulpit he needs to take over the op-ed page too? Like, isn't that little like... Yeah, but it just, you know what it is? It's laying down a marker on a specific topic, right? right. Because the reality is... He has a huge pulpit, but it's all day on a zillion different issues. Not not in the way that Trump did, which was just like literally all day on Twitter, right. but still, it's highly frequent. If you write an op-ed in the Washington Post, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, on something specific, it's like, it I care about this. Right? I want everyone to know well, We're going to actually get to an op-ed you wrote also in the Daily News this week, but we're going to get to that in a minute. The, okay. the, the Biden op-ed was about something that we've covered on this podcast many, many times in the last couple of years, which is the, um, the opportunity for the White House in particular to do some really good things um, on technology policy, particularly the repeal of 230, uh, privacy, a a general sort of increase in sort of the competitive landscape around these companies. So he he laid it out in a way, and I was like, like, do you think the president listens to Firewall? Do you think that's possible? Oh, yeah, definitely. I'm sure he listens to tons of podcasts, (laughs) and I think right after Joe Rogan, where it's number one lesson every week. But it did did track pretty closely uh, stuff that you've been saying on this podcast. Yeah, uh, and, and conversations we have had with the White House as well. Right. But um, yeah, look, I mean, in part because I think, obviously I wouldn't say it if I didn't think it was logical, I think it's fairly logical, which is, one, um, tech regulation is an area uh, where there's potential bipartisan uh, agreement. Two, it is really politically popular. Every parent uh, really has an issue with Instagram and Facebook and a whole bunch of these platforms um, and if you were to solve it or help solve it, parents would be really appreciative. And that's true for Republican parents and Democratic parents. And um, in a divided Congress where, you know, arguably not a single thing will pass for the next two years, this is something that can show the government still functions and has some ability to get things done. And so I, I just think for the White House, it became a, a, a logical path to pursue of, you know, a lot of social issues that were in Build Back Better, like the child care tax credit, is never going to happen with the Republican House. But could repealing Section 230 or privacy, the natural privacy framework happen? Yeah, it's possible. Do you think, uh, so possible, what what are the roadblocks? Like, what's the what's the thing that they need to solve to get the Republican support for it? You, you got a few things, right? So n- number one would be, you got to let the Republicans frame it in their own way. Their way is there's anti-conservative bias by the platforms, which, by the way, I, I think is true. Um, you know, so let them frame it the way they want. And don't you don't have to just insist that you're always smarter than everyone else and right, which is a huge flaw the Democrats continually fall into, number one. Number two, um, you, uh, you got to overcome, you know, a massive lobby, right? So, like, yes, Facebook is wildly unpopular, but they have, like— hundreds of lobbyists on the payroll, and so does Google, and so does Amazon, and so does Apple, and so does Microsoft. And, you know, some of them are more intent on protecting Section 230 than others, 
but um, you've just got a huge amount of, of political firepower and Elon Musk, who's you know very influential among the right these days, owns Twitter. So you're going to have to overcome all of that, which means you're going to have to use real political capital, and you will probably have to give them something else unrelated that you care about that your members won't that that they care about that your members will not like to help get it done. But I do think that if you consider the fact that 85% of American adults own a smartphone um, and social media is just one of the most omnipresent things in our world. Um, taking the steps, whatever it takes politically to actually do something positive about it, is worth it. Does the arrival of a new chief of staff at the White House make any difference on this? Yeah, maybe. I, th I think Klain was very competent, but seemed incredibly concerned with getting likes and retweets on Twitter and, and no one <laughs> ever did. no one ever accusing him of not being sufficiently woke. Like right. that, the, that really seemed like he was like, I know I'm an old white guy, but I'm going to preempt this by being as left-wing as possible on Twitter. And like, I still think he's actually a pretty effective chief of staff. They got infrastructure done. They got a, you know, green energy bill done. They got a few things done. So, um, but I think Zions, who is a, comes at it from a much more private sector background, it just, is seemingly more moderate. Guess how many times he's tweeted? Zero. You 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 support that? You endorse that? I do. So yeah. um, I I am hopeful that you will have that. In a way, it's the right change, right? Clean probably made sense for a Congress controlled by the Democrats. Someone a little less radically left wing and someone a little more centrist and and less worried about you know the perception among by Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, whoever it is it may be a better fit for a bipartisan Congress. Uh, speaking of big tech companies, um, a ton of big layoffs, uh, not just the tech companies. Goldman Sachs had announced more layoffs last week. You had Google, you had Microsoft, you know, big chunks of, of the workforce. Yeah. Um, so does this look to you as sort of part of the healthy process? I mean, obviously there's trauma involved with the people who are actually yeah, losing their sure. jobs and their colleagues and all that, but and families, but, but just from a, from a sort of higher no, I, vantage I, point. What, what it says to me is the boom and bust mentality that we criticize early stage venture for or just venture for in general mm -hmm. is really apparent throughout the entire economy, right? Which is when things seem good, people put their, you know, their, their foot on the gas, they hire like crazy, it's growth at all costs, and it will all pay off in the end. And then the minute things get bad, everyone pulls back, they start focusing on unit economics, on productivity, on profit margin, things like that. And one of the ways that you can increase your profit margin and improve your unit economics is to have fewer employees and less staff costs. So um, it just, you know, we're just in this constant cycle of up and down. And, you know, would we be better off with something a little more moderate along the way? We would, but that would require, A, human nature to be a little different. And B, it, it, we couldn't, if we have a world where all media and social media is all boom and bust, all evil and, and good at the same time, then it's really hard for anyone to show real moderation. Do you think this is a good time to be hiring generally? Is that is there a kind of counter-cyclical? There's more talent. So yeah, yeah. I mean, because we're, we're always hiring for something. And I would say we are seeing better candidates now. We are seeing less competition for those candidates. Right. Um, and I would also say that if someone's not performing on our team, we're probably more likely to move them out because we can replace them with someone more talented. Okay. Uh, let's talk about your op-ed in, in the Daily News, which was about uh, the organization that you're a co-founder of, uh, Mayday. Just I, We talked about it a bunch of times, but just explain what Mayday is sure. so everybody's on the right page so, here. So Mayday Health is an education nonprofit that shows women in red states 
how they can still get an abortion. So more than 50 percent, I think the number I saw this weekend was 53 percent of abortions in the U.S. are done via pills, not via surgical procedure. Um, and they are FDA approved. They are found to be 99 percent safe. Um, they are very, very safe, effective drugs. And while the state of South Carolina, Utah, Mississippi, whoever it is, can ban abortion and even ban teleabortion, they can't really track everyone's internet usage, and they can't track what's being sent in the U.S. mail, which means, like it or not, if women in red states want to continue getting abortion, and if we're able to show them, here are the providers, here's how you can set up mail forwarding so that it kind of legally works for the providers and works for you, here are your legal rights, um, all of that you know, becomes very, very hard to stop. It's the only solution to continue to provide access at scale. You know, Planned Parenthood and others have talked about, well, we're going to transport women from, you know, uh, Indiana to Pennsylvania so they can get abortions. Like, yeah, a few here and there, but that's not going to happen at scale. Or just think about, like, our kids, right? So we all have 16-year-old daughters. Um, they are probably competent enough to find something on the Internet, order it, and execute it. But are they going to, like, they have the wherewithal to, like, find the organization and go to another state and all that stuff? No, of course they don't, right? Or at least right. my kids. <laughs> um, so it just seems to me that this is the only feasible, scalable solution. But one of the things that's really necessary, and this is what the op-ed was about, is um, you have to give doctors in blue states as much comfort as possible in partaking in this because the red states will say what you're doing the is The doctors illegal. who are writing the prescriptions. Correct, okay. correct. So um, we uh, are working to pass a shield law in Albany that would provide significant protection for doctors and medical providers. So it means they couldn't be extradited to Kentucky. Um, they can't be charged by the state of Kentucky uh, in, in New York or tried for it with any criminal charges. The police can't arrest them. It basically says, you know, yeah, maybe you probably shouldn't step foot in Lexington again, although I don't know how many New Yorkers really go to Lexington in the first place. Oh, but racing. Um, right. Exactly. Uh, but if you uh, can put that one thing aside, you can continue to help, you know, ultimately probably millions of women who, who desperately need it. And so we, uh, Senator Shelley Mayer in the Albany, in the New York State Senate, has a fantastic bill that, that we've been helping with. Um, and I understand it's going to come up for a vote as early as Tuesday. Um, it's moving quick. It's moved out of committee. Uh, we have a campaign now going in the assembly and, and seemingly over the weekend we saw some momentum. Um, have had really good conversations with the governor's office. So I, I think there's a decent shot that we pass this and even pass it maybe in the next couple of weeks. And then the question is, if we can pass it really early in the session, call it late January, early February, other states still have a lot of session left in them, right? So is that enough time to spur New Jersey to action? You know, I, I talked to Phil Murphy about it. He's definitely looking at it. Is it enough time to spur Maryland or Illinois or California or Oregon? You know, serious blue states um, that have lots of doctors that could really be helpful here. Um, so that's my hope is that we can get not only get New York done, which in itself would just massively increase the supply of doctors to do this, but could also then spur other states. Right. So stepping back for a second from the from the sort of tactical moves on May Day to like what you're learning about the sort of current political landscape from working on this particular issue. So this is one where you have, you know, it's a real red blue state divide here. You yeah, know, it's you, like you, right. But you know, it's sort of a relief for me a little bit as, as someone who kind of spent some part of my life in New York politics. The war we're always fighting here is the far left versus the centers, right? right? right. So it's, you know, like the Working Families Party today, I saw in, in one of the papers, you know, issued a questionnaire to council, council candidates saying we will only support you if you support defunding the police and, and even more bail reform, right? Which means don't Wait, ever— Wait, so there's a quid pro quo on, the, on this the, bill? 
No, oh, just okay. just oh. we won't. If if you want our endorsement in the upcoming election, oh, okay. you have to go even further left and take the fucking reality, which is a crime that's really bad, and deny it completely and keep exacerbating it and making it worse. And of course, you have Mayor Adams and, and lots of centrists who certainly don't want that to happen. They're all technically Democrats, but the divide in New York on most issues is between the far left and the center. Whereas on abortion, what's been nice is like. Well, the Democrats are on the same side on this one, right? right. Like, I'm not getting whacked by the far left on, on this issue. Um, and so, you know, overall, would I like to see Albany be a little more bipartisan because I think that otherwise, you know, bad legislation like bail reform happens? Yes, but when it's a bill that you care about, you're pretty happy to have an overwhelming Democratic majority in both chambers. Sure. What about the idea, I was, I was reading, I think I, I think I might have sent it to you, this analysis of sort of backlash against certain political victories. So the, I mean, the abortion wasn't a political victory per se, it was the Supreme Court. But the reaction it seems to have inspired was from from the center and yep. from the left, sort of what actually what you're talking about, which is it's 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 a it's 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 made a lot of progress within that. Within well, and that. It, it just reflects back to human nature. People are far more likely to act on something if they are upset about it and want to change it than if they're happy about it, right? So the, for 50 years, the pro-lifers fought this battle. They finally won, at least for now, right? Well, they finally victory, won. Right, yeah. And as a result, if you look at the midterm elections, the Democrats did significantly better than anyone expected, expected because when you win, I think probably a pro-lifers like, you know, I've been fucking going to rallies and turning out and doing everything for 50 years. And they almost probably feel like they can take a break right now, whereas Democrats and you know are, are upset and yeah. saying I, I need yeah. to try to do something about this. And so you know I, I think that's just it, it always shifts based on that. Um, we're going to have a guest, so we're going to pivot to uh, uh, this new. I guess it's a piece of legislation in the UK. We're going to have a guest on later, mm -hmm. probably yeah. next week, to talk about this specifically. But um, wanted to get your thoughts on it and sort of preview what that discussion might be. Um, I guess the law in the UK um, is not just a repeal. They don't have um, Section 230 in the same way that we do. But right. they would actually, if if uh, tech executives fail to um, endorse or sort of enforce standards on the on their social media platforms, they could actually face jail time. Yeah. Um, is this is this just like one of these kind of empty threats that they throw out no, there? No, I don't. I don't think so. Look, both both the EU and now the UK have been much more aggressive regulators on internet privacy in general, on protecting children and other vulnerable people on the internet. Um, they have been much more proactive about it, and I think it's a combination of one, the companies that they are attacking are not European companies. They're right. American companies, right? right? So like, it's easy because <laughs> they get to kill a few birds with one stone. They right. get to feel better about themselves because they're saying how evil America Perfect, is. Right. And even though they've been around for a thousand years longer, they're actually half as good. Um, so that's number one. Um, number two, you know, their political system in some ways allows for it more because you have this sort of central unifying fact in, in the EU and Brussels, even though the UK is no longer part of it. Uh, I think the parliamentary system in some ways in the UK makes some of this stuff more feasible because you can build a coalition that doesn't just require one or two people's support or if their opposition is there, the whole thing is dead. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that their system is, is better off for it. But I also think that both, you know, their populations are better off for it and their politicians as a result are better off for it. And so I, I do think we get to the same place here eventually, but every day we wait, is honestly a day that another kid commits suicide because something saw on Instagram. So I'm going to ask you to do my homework for me. What's the kind of thing you want somebody on the ground to tell you, like about this, about the the movement in Europe and uh, behind this? Is there something? Is there a? Is there a? Yeah, I mean, I guess here's the thing. So what they have there is sort of it seems like a lot more consensus among 
policy experts and legislators that tech needs to be more heavily regulated. In the U.S., there's not sufficient of that view, because otherwise we would have the regulation, right. right? So the question is, what happened on the ground, if anything, that helped move this, right? right. Because it's not really happening here in, in major ways, and I don't think we're going to get over the top if it's purely advocates versus tech companies, I, th I think, need to create a movement. Right. Um, Ron DeSantis uh, seems to be really about to, oh, I don't know about, but very soon going to be declaring his candidacy for the presidency. Yeah. He's being very active in a kind of national way, doing what appear to be these almost silly kind of attacks on like the woke movement. I mean, he even attacked like the National Hockey League um, for being woke, which it's hard to imagine what... <laughs> What the, because there's less fighting. <laughs> no, I think there was a. They did this thing where they uh, they had a, the, to celebrate Pride Day. They had players wear uh, special jerseys, and there was one one player on one team. Okay, one player on one team did not want to wear the jersey, so they he just didn't skate during the preview. And then it was, it's sort of this big deal. But to me, it actually seemed like a big success for the league, which is like, hey, every, you know, yeah, one guy it. didn't wear it. So what? Right. Who cares? It's like everyone else wore well, it. For, like, for as long as we're talking about this, DeSantis will keep doing it, right? Keep in mind, first and foremost, he is a politician, which means most likely I've never met him, but there's probably a 99% chance that he is a desperately, as we like to say, insecure, self-loathing person <laughs> that can't without the validation of holding office, which means when he gets attention, he hates himself less. Right. And if, if getting attention via, you know, you, using Disney or the NHL or whatever it is works for him, he's going to keep doing it, right? Just like when I worked for Schumer and did press, you know, we would constantly attack certain industries um, because, you know, the media seemed to like it, and so it just kept getting pressed, and whether it was the breakfast so, so cereal industry question about that. We've talked about your, time, your yeah. time with Chuck a lot. Did you ever sometimes think, like, oh, this is a little embarrassing that, like, that, that the senator needs to... I often thought that. And that, by the way, that was, especially in the case of Chuck, commonly held opinion. You know, I, I did a call the other day uh, with a comms person from the FTC, and he said to me, you know, I was looking at your bio, I was a little nervous, and then I saw that you'd been Schumer's comms director. I was like, okay, this guy certainly knows what it's like. And I was like, yep, I do. Um, yeah, look, I mean, that's, in, in some ways, and, and this is why Chuck, I think, has been angering me for a long time, because I've said this publicly and wrote about it in my book. I don't think he's different or worse than the average politician. I just think he's much more naked about it, right? And he is just much more aggressive about it. And he's a relentless about it. I mean, it's like literally every Sunday morning, he's he, on, yeah. he's got the press conference, he's out there, and it can be like, the, whatever. I'm High like, price like, of breakfast cereal. But yeah, yeah. but, but he, <laughs> he, he needs it for his own well-being. I remember after I spent two years working for Chuck, I looked back and said, okay, we had a zillion press conferences did we pass any bills? And like, I think the answer was pretty much close to zero, right? Because right. that wasn't the point. The point was to get attention so that he would feel better about himself. Um, do you think DeSantis, so DeSantis is doing this, he's following the Chuck Schumer playbook. Is there any risk to it of like, of like sort of looking like a, like not a serious candidate? Not, I don't know about that. I think the risk is, is, a, is a fewfold. One is, you know, he has adopted the view that he has to be as far right as possible to win the Republican primary. And then he'll shift back over closer to the center for the general election. You know, in theory, that works, but it doesn't always work in practice because sometimes you form enough of an impression on voters, um, even if they're not your, you know, your voters or your party during the primary, that they're like, this guy sucks, right? So one is he is risking alienating independents who could vote for him, who are willing to vote for parties, candidates in either party. So that, that's number one. Number two, you know, everyone talks about what a great spot he's in. I'm not sure that's true, right? So we are still 
what, 22 months out from the election itself. And he's sitting there in the pole position, which, yeah, sure, you want to be ahead, not behind. But now he's a fucking pinata, right? Like every other, whether it's Yunkin or Haley or Pompeo or Pence, Trump or whoever it is, you know, some of them will do it openly, like Trump will attack him. Some of them will have people do oppo and they'll feed it to reporters. But either way, he's the target now. He's been the target for a really long time. I think one of the reasons you see him with this full court press is one, because he likes the attention, but two, um, he's trying to keep the beast at, at bay, right? And right. the more red meat he can feel, feed the media, um, the less vulnerable he is to all the oppo coming his way. One of the one of the things uh, that he's been talking about is a, a potential ban of the COVID vaccine and uh, mask mandates. Um, I mean, stuff like that does seem. No, I think that's the kind of stuff that will come back to haunt you in the general election. Right. It, it might. It's true. Republican primary voters may be so fucking right wing and crazy at this point that even a COVID vaccine ban somehow appeals to them, which is, it's still <laughs> hard to fathom that. Right. But um, most voters aren't idiots, right? And I think most people in this country take. In fact, there was an article today in one of the papers that um, this winter has been a lot less bad than they expected. They expected this like triple threat of. COVID and RSV and the flu, like overwhelming hospitals, and it hasn't happened. You know why? Because most people have been vaccinated, right? right? It's pretty fucking simple. And so, yeah, I, I think he certainly risks going too far. And this is the problem you have when you live in a world where you're just trying to appeal to a small group of people and, and to keep doing it, sort of like the, like the political version of the hedonic treadmill, which is you keep after saying crazier and crazier shit to, to make an impact and for people to notice. And then as a result, you put yourself so far out there that it gets really hard to come back to the middle. So um, a, a minor theme of the podcast is I, I appointed you head of Nikki Haley's um, 2024 well, campaign. Yeah. Yeah. Just for the podcast, Nikki has not actually reached out to Tusk Strategies. Maybe she, she should. I don't um, think she will. <laughs> but so... Um, Nikki Haley, what, what should she be doing right now? Uh, if if she's looking at Ron DeSantis lay building low, this lead, lay low. Raise money, do as much oppo into DeSantis as you Call can. Call Tusk and, Strategies. And give it to reporters. <laughs> There's Republican versions of us that can do that. We, we are neither Republican nor Democrat. Um, so, but, but what I would say is raise money, buy your time, don't look ridiculous, um, and try to tear DeSantis down quietly. Um, we're going to do one of our hard pivots because okay. uh, this is a, a real hard pivot. We're going to talk about bathrooms in New York City. Yeah. Um, so there's a um, there's a there's a woman um, who wrote a column. I should really mention her name, shouldn't I? Um, uh, about uh, she's sort of made a cause celeb of 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 the lack of bathrooms in the city, which. It is bigger than just a convenience issue, actually. I mean, you really do see, especially with the huge um, uh, growth in, like, uh, delivery guys on the street and stuff. Like, yeah. they, they, it really is a... Uh, I mean, I don't know, human rights is exactly the, the term, but it's, 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 it's a big problem. Um, the fact that, that just when you're on the street in New York City, you do not have a place that you can find to go to the bathroom. Yeah. So this woman's name is... Theodora Siegel, and so she started a big campaign. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, her column for the New York Times, where she talked about how difficult it is to find a bathroom and cite some pretty scary statistics about the scarcity of bathrooms, she doesn't really have any good ideas about what to do. Yeah, that's the problem. Um, so now you, Bloomberg had a big... Well, before that, so when okay. I worked at the Parks Department, oh, right, right, oh, right. where I was out of college and then right out of law school, this was a major, major issue. Because... You know, you remember this when your kids were little. It is better if the playground you're in has a functioning bathroom, right? Because at some point your kid's going to have to go to the bathroom. And, and whether you're changing a diaper or just actually teaching them how to use the toilet, either way, much better. The problem is it is also a place that attracts homeless people and drug addicts. And there are needles left on the ground. And there's assaults in the bathroom. And so they're an important amenity. 
but the downside is so significant that you end up, at least when I was there, creating very, very few new public bathrooms because the harm outweighs the good. I remember we did do one in East River Park, and it was a pretty, like, rare thing. And instead of... Um, Cutting a ribbon, we cut a roll of toilet paper, which uh, oh. people were really Is that, Was that your little touch, Bradley? I think it was. Oh. Uh, I actually think it, it got me my job for humor. Um, it all comes together. Maybe that was the whole moment, though. It's like Tusk strategies. Everything was born with that little yeah, well, moment that snip, of the, right. the snip. So, but, but the point is... Are there any photographs of that that we can find? Probably somewhere. I think we got It'd be of Henry Stern, not of me. Right, yeah. I know. But we could just sort of pencil you in there. Yeah, I think we find that. Um, okay. So the challenge is... I don't think anyone knows what to do about it. So other cities, both abroad, I think some in the U.S., have tried these versions of, like, pay toilets that self-clean, and in theory, they're safer and better. That may be true, but my understanding is they're very expensive, and they're still subject to all kinds of problems, right? They don't um, seem to work at all. The one in Madison Square Park, I'm sure you've yeah, seen it. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's just pathetic. They, right, and if it's a couple of bucks, you know, homeless people can assemble a couple of bucks. If they want to hang out in there, they can, right? right. And so... Um, that's not a really good solution. And look, you know, I, I taught my kids pretty young, like, if you have to go to the bathroom and you're near a hotel, just walk in, don't say anything, and just find the signs for the bathroom and go to the bathroom and walk out. No one's going to really say anything. But let's be honest, we are white. We are wealthy. You know, uh, I'm a middle-aged white guy who's dressed, you know, so honestly, even I'm dressed the way I'm dressed today, I'm wearing sneakers, cargo pants, and a sweatshirt. I could still walk. Also, your really nice Tusk Strategies. Um, it's so comfortable. It looks good. I have they, to say, I was, I was. I have to say what it is. It's a North Face Tusk Strategies, like zip up yeah, fleece. Yeah, it was, it's surprisingly comfortable. Um, <laughs> so, um, even dressed like this, I could be walking in front of the Langham or the St. Regis or whatever fancy hotel you want to put, and I could still walk right in and go to the bathroom. Right. But let's be honest. Um, that is for a small segment of the population who looks like me or looks like you. Um, so, yes, there is a resource in terms of, of hotels, but I think it's a very limited resource and it's not an equitable resource at all. And I don't, you know, I kind of feel for the, for the person who wrote the column because she's, she's right that it is a problem. And she's also right that she doesn't have any solutions because there aren't many. I'll give you one thing that, that maybe at the margins can make a difference. So I'd invested in a company called Metropolis, and they were trying to kind of re-envision urban transportation, last mile delivery, um, ways to sort of better service rideshare drivers. And one of the things that they do is they build bathrooms for Uber drivers, for Lyft drivers, and I don't see why that couldn't apply to DoorDash delivery people or Uber Eats. Is that company still active? Yeah, okay. yeah, they're still active. You know, they're still building, and there's not a ton of them, but if, if they were to succeed at scale, you could at least solve the problem for one segment of the population who, who by the way, really needs it. Um, we have two more things, and sure. then we'll, we'll, we'll let listeners on their way. Okay. Um, uh, you sent me a uh, Ross uh, Douthat column mm -hmm. about the um, uh, Fleischman trouble. Fleischman is in trouble. Yeah, it's uh, great. Did you read that? Had you read it already? It was such a good column. You know, I haven't read it. I, I have. I, I I know the the author a little bit. Worked with her at the New York Times. She's a great person. Really yeah. lovely. I have, I have nothing against her um, whatsoever. But I'm I'm not a fan of this genre particularly. This sort of contemporary New York City it's upper fun. middle it's class my, angst thing. I it's just not. Love those books. It's just not my area. So yeah. I haven't read it. But I'm you know I might. So here's the thing: is because I haven't read the but book. Now you, you, you've heard so much of it. It's like watching White Lotus right now. What's the point? I, I guess I, I honestly it doesn't like I read the column you sent me and I, it just didn't. 
it, like I, it just—it's not that I didn't make sense, right? But I, just, I don't know if you're going to like it. I actually did not really like the TV show. But tell me why you sent me the column. What, what about it? Because was, it, what it was about was, and you know, maybe it was a very New York City, LA specific, London type column. But it was about people who live here, who are highly educated, who are professionals, who make by any measure a tremendous amount of money—a family income of half a million dollars a year, eight hundred thousand dollars a year, big numbers—and yet. The rat race that they're in, they don't actually have enough money to get ahead. And in order to pay for, you know, the really expensive cost of housing in New York City and private school and everything else, they're basically spending 100% of what they're making every single year. So they feel strapped. Now, does it seem absurd that people who take nice three nice vacations a year and everything else should feel strapped? It does seem absurd. But at the same time, they do feel that way, right? So the, the point of the article was to say that even if you kind of project yourself where you're in this sort of meritocracy, upper middle class, striving community, um, there's still a, a lot of downsides to it and a lot of pitfalls, and it does, it's not a recipe for happiness. The point that I wanted to make, though, wasn't, I agree with that, but it wasn't so much that. It's what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, which is the other thing you see from this group, it's not just sort of fear and frustration, but real anger towards the people who don't have to make those sacrifices and choices because they have succeeded more than they did. Right. And those people are very unlikely to say, so-and-so made partner because they're smarter than me, they're worked harder than me, they're better than me. They say it's because I was discriminated against. You know, And by the way, not discriminated from racial, just like in some way I was right. cheated. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, there's... You know, we've talked about like the 17th percent, the 9th percent, the 23rd percent. They're really the ones running the show here, right? Because, yeah, they're not the 1 percent, but they are ultimately the people who run the New York Times, the media, uh, higher ed, cultural institutions, nonprofits, a lot of government. And a lot of their policies are based on resentment towards the 1 percent. And as a result, and I'm not sure that like I I. We've taught this a lot. I believe in universal, universal basic income. I would gladly pay more money in taxes if, if it could be used effectively. And I think it could just by putting it right in people's pockets. I believe in reparations. You know, I, I have no problem, and I give away most of my money anyway. Right? So I, I clearly have no problem with the, the rich paying more and doing more. But the policies at sort of the 17th percent are kind of the worst of all worlds, right? Because they do things that they think somehow make them righteous, but all they end up doing is hurting people from like the 40th percent to the 90th percent. So they oppose charter schools. They oppose affordable housing development because they're super nimbyist and they want a zillion environmental reviews. They oppose new job creation like the Amazon headquarters in Queens. So all, you know, they, they kind of have all these statements saying, you know, the rich should move to Florida. Guess what? 50,000 taxpayers in New York City pay close to 50% of the taxes. If all those people move to Florida, you have no fucking money for any social services. So like all the things that they purport to care about, their actual policies, their insecurities, their resentments are driving the exact opposite return. Um, we're going to close with, a, with a, what I hope will be a recurring feature of our Tuesday episodes, yeah. which is just going to ask you for one recommendation. It could be anything. So yeah, I, so I, I read an amazing— well, wait, you want, I want you to explain the concept. Okay, yeah, sure. a little bit. I just, I just want to say, so, the, so we often talk about the books you read or, or TV shows, which is great, but this can actually be anything. It could be a book or TV show, yeah. but it could, it could even be like, I met this person last week or my daughter told me this idea, or it could be anything. So, um, But if you want to start with a book or TV show, I that's mean, fine. I mean, I'm going to start with a book simply okay. because I read a book oh, right. uh, called Stories from the Tenants Downstairs by an author named Siddiq Fofana, um, New York City-based book. I think it is a, a strong contender to win the Gotham Book Prize this year. 
and it was exceptional. It was just remarkable. And it's a, a, the author is a school teacher. The author is a school teacher in New York City, so someone who I also think would, would really benefit from winning the book prize. But, but more important than the book prize, it is a story about uh, people in Upper Manhattan, in Harlem, um, and it's you know various families kind of all centered around one housing project. Okay. And they're stories, but they all cut in and out, and they kind of people appear and reappear. And so you end up getting a sense like you would in a novel of a character over the course of, of multiple parts of it. Not, you're not just contained to that one 20-page segment. And the voice that he writes it, and by the way, his ability just to capture diverse voices of people, like, yes, they might all be, in this case, African-American, but you have people who are male, female, old, young, all kinds of different perspectives. And it just felt to me, at least, like he just captures this incredibly well. So it was just once in a while a book just absolutely, like, Floors stuns you, you yeah, floors yeah. you, and, and this is one of them. Good. All right, brother. All right, two more. I, I forgot oh. all the housekeeping. We haven't been doing it lately. Oh, what, what, what's the that? housekeeping? One, oh. we are recording from oh P and T Network, P and T Network, one eighty Orchard Street in Manhattan. It is a bookstore and podcast studio. You really should say that at the top. I really should. I know yeah. probably and anyone who's listening at this point already knows where we're recording from. <laughs> but uh, and then for those who are listening, um, really appreciate if you can continue to please rate and review us on that's Spotify the one we want at the end. We want Apple the true fans or at the end. whatever it is. Uh, I've, I looked it up the other day. We don't have a lot of reviews. Maybe between the uh, Apple and Spotify, we have you know, 80, 90 reviews. But I think we're at like a 4849. So people like the podcast. So thank you for those of you who have done it. And, and for those of you who haven't, if you could, I'd really appreciate it. See you next week, Bradley. See you. Bye.